0: Hello, oh, and welcome to Minta Dialogue, episode number 75. This interview, recorded on the September 10th, 2013, is with Daniel Rolls. Like me, Daniel is a speaker and trainer at eConsultancy, where he was awarded eConsultancy Trainer of the Year in 2012. More importantly, though, he is Managing Director of TargetInternet.com, and is, along with Kieran Rogers, host of the Digital Marketing Podcast, of which I've been a long-time listener and fan. In this conversation, we talk about mobile marketing, digital branding, fending off a hack attack, creating a digital marketing strategy, and much more. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com. That's T H E M Y N D S E T but branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. So, welcome to the Mint Dialogue show, and today, piped in from Brighton, England, we have Daniel Rolls. Explain who you are and what you're up to, Daniel.
1: Hi there. Uh, I'm Daniel Rolls. I am, on a day-to-day basis, I'm a digital marketing consultant and trainer, so I spend most of my time working with organizations uh, globally, planning and implementing their digital campaigns. So that means uh, various different roles in various different places. I'm a course director for the Chartered Institute of Marketing, which i means I teach on their behalf. Uh, I now lecture at Imperial College in London. Uh, I'm a trainer for e-consultancy. But what it really boils down to is helping people plan and implement and do all the change that's associated with digital Um, I'm also managing director of TargetInternet.com, which is a digital marketing content-based website, uh, but we actually sell e-learning, which is another story, Mm -hmm. together. Um, And then I run the digital marketing podcast.
0: About which I am a big fan, and I've spoken about it many times. So you've um, authored uh, one book, and you're working on another. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so I've just finished up the book. Uh, called Mobile Marketing, which is coming out in November of this year, 2013, um, and which is really looks at what impact mobile marketing is having, what it means in terms of marketing, advertising, communications, and how it's really changing things. So that, that's the first book. And then the next one that's coming out in the beginning of 2014 is Digital Branding, which really looks at what does branding mean in a digital world, and actually, how do you put value against brand, and, and, and how has the world of kind of brand valuation changed as well? Mm. So it's, it's been an interesting experience because I've, I've done lots and lots of writing over the years, and you know, we both blog and uh, we write reports and all those sorts of things. Um, but the publisher approached me and said, "Would you write a book on mobile marketing?" To which I said, "Absolutely, I'd love to." <laughs> um, and you know, I thought eighty thousand words—that doesn't sound too bad at all. Uh, and it's only when you sit down to do it that the the scale of the task becomes a little bit more interesting, but I actually really, really enjoyed the process. The process in itself is very interesting, Hmm. but but really exploring mobile marketing in depth and having some time to actually sit back and just think through what does this really mean was was quite interesting.
0: Surely. Well, let's start with what is mobile?
1: Well, Well, that's probably the most interesting question because we went for years saying, oh, this is the year of mobile. This is the year of mobile. And um, eventually, all of a sudden, this year, last year, however you'd like to look at it, it was suddenly the year of mobile. Everybody was talking about mobile. The traffic to our websites was increasingly coming on mobile devices. But there's, there's a pro- couple of problems with that. The first is if you look at when we say mobile marketing, we just suddenly think about devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem with that is, say, okay, well, look at my, my phone. How big does that phone become mm-hmm. before it was a tablet? Mm-hmm. Or what about if on my laptop the screen turns over and it's a touchscreen, does that become a tablet device? So the the blurring of the lines of devices is, is there already, and it's only going to continue over time as well. So we focus on device, but the amount of devices is growing and growing all the time. And actually, it's not about the device, it's about the user journey, and it's about how the user journey changes. Mm-hmm. So really, saying mobile marketing is actually a bit is a bit of a stupid term, really, because what we're really talking about is, how search has changed, how social media needs to be considered, different, how email changes, how mm. advertising changes. And it affects every single um, part of, of, of digital marketing. And in fact, offline marketing as well, where the mobile device is the bridging device between the online and offline worlds as well. So the reality is that mobile marketing isn't one particular thing, but it affects pretty much everything. Well,
0: I, I'm I just listening to you. I'm thinking it, actually we, maybe we should call it moment marketing. Because, so, you know, your moments when you're traveling, your moments when you're sitting down, double screening, you have these different moments when you might use one or other of your devices. And so then it's sort of what environment, what context are you in
1: that you uh, want to approach them? Context is the thing. So it's really about the, the user journey is becoming more complicated. Um, multiple ways of accessing you know, websites, apps, interacting. Uh, through social media, you may be doing that mobile device. You might be on a desktop. You might be on a laptop. Um, you know, it's not going to be long before we're on kind of hybrid devices. Uh, you know, in terms of things like Google Glass becoming more mainstream and, and so on. So, really, what it's about is trying to get a better understanding of that user journey, and then putting things in place that allow us to cope with the increased complexity. Which is, um, you know, why having you know, people saying, "Oh, we need a mobile compatible website." You do, but it's not, it's not quite that straightforward. You need to make sure that your website is adapting to the different devices. So responsive. Exactly. And, and, and there's all this kind of confusion at the moment because there's all these different terms, adaptive design, responsive design. What do they mean? And developers will talk about responsive design in a very different way to what the average user thinks the word means as well. Now, there is some unification of thought on this. And what I mean is that technically speaking, responsive design is a very particular thing. And it means that everything is sent to your device and then your device kind of sorts it out and displays the right version. But that's not a very efficient way of doing things. So what we've really got is a combination of technologies that we're calling responsive design. But the problem with all this is already well talking about it, but most organisations aren't redeveloping their websites on such a uh, quick cycle that they can suddenly sink lots of money into this new responsive website that they're going to have to update and change. I think the mindset is that the website is never finished. And it's something that we will need to be changing and adopting uh, on, on a constant basis from now on. And people need to have the budgets available or find low cost ways of doing that as well. Um, and the low cost ways is what I talked about in the book a little bit, because I thought, you know, we need to do this quickly. This is, this is not something that we can really wait for because um, I think in the UK, we've got 24% of traffic to, to websites or mobile devices. Now in some other countries, it's over 50% already. Mm-hmm. So. We really need to make sure that we're not just ignoring those those kind of potential customers, existing customers, and we're serving them in a in an appropriate way. We're not giving them a poor experience. All right, let's be a little bit geeky
0: and uh, talk Google Glass and iWatch or watch, uh, mobile watches, smart watches. What's your opinion on one or the other?
1: So I think, first of all, Google Glass is the future of things, but not in its current iteration. I think it's a bit of a PR stunt still at the moment. So the technology isn't quite, quite there yet. Um, just in terms of battery life, in terms of functionality, in terms of how much it stands out when you're wearing it and those sorts of things. But the, but the reality is, if you just take it a step back, what, what is Google Glass? we well, you're just basically connected to a mobile device. It's got voice recognition and you have some form of augmented reality. There, there's absolutely, it's absolutely logical to see that's the path forward that we'll constantly be connected to the internet in one way or another. Um, voice recognition makes perfect sense. Actually, if you look at thought control, where we get—it sounds really scientific—but there's already children's toys
2: mm-hmm.
1: trouble things through thinking in a particular way. So it makes sense. And um, when you get into this even more deeply, um, that kind of merging between your mobile device and you and how fast it becomes has already started to happen. Mm-hmm. And what about the watch? But the watch—I think it's—it's it's poor timing at the moment. I don't think that's, <laughs> that's a funny joke. <laughs> It's—it it's, doesn't really work because. The the display technology isn't ready yet. And what I mean by that is the the flat display, um, the inflexible displays, um, battery. There's various things that aren't quite there yet to make it what it could be. And actually, there's a very human thing to this where um, people wear watches at the moment for for a particular reason. They like a particular watch. They're very functional. They're very fashion-oriented or it's a status symbol, whatever it may be. Um, This will attract a certain audience, but I don't think the functionality is quite there yet. And I think you know, I could wear it on my wrist, but, but could I just put it in my pocket? In fact, if you go two years in the future, why do I need to do that where I'm actually wearing contact lenses that I've got augmented reality in them and I can see it anyway? So I, I'm not sure the time is quite right with, with the watches. I think there'll be a certain level of people who use them. But really, when you break it down, all it is, it's just a mobile device that's strapped onto your wrist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I'm not sure I'm as quite as excited about it as I am about the potential of Google Glass, and really, what all this, all this means is that the different mobile devices, mm-hmm.
0: different contexts. All right. So on digital branding, I'm curious. Um, what, what is it, How did you approach the, or how are you approaching it? Because of the different types of sectors, we're uh, a luxury uh, down to low cost, how are you approaching that?
1: Uh, what I've tried to do is just look at common, start with common problems, and. The, the most common problem for all the brands that people I spoke to about this was saying, okay, what's, what's, you, you look at your, your, your peer now, you look at your profit and loss, and you say, okay, you've got this marketing spend, and you've got this big bunch of spend here that's on brand um, branding of some description. Now, if you're a great luxury brand, you, you do know the value of your brand and to some extent in a lot of cases. And you don't really know, however, how the different elements of your marketing efforts are building up to that brand, but you try and kind of do it. But what I've found is most organizations and most marketing teams, when they don't know what return they're getting from a particular piece of marketing, they call it, oh, it's it's brand, it's a brand
2: campaign.
1: (laughs) They'll do some print advertising. They'll do something they can't measure particularly effectively, and they'll call it branding. Now, although that does impact the brand, it's not a brand campaign. And my argument is that actually branding has fundamentally changed because when we do these uh, amazing um, pieces of branding which may be maybe you know maybe t v maybe be display advertising could be could be anything, the brand is made up of every experience somebody has of that particular company that organization so the reality is what we 're able to do a lot more now is look at all of those different touch points and try and work out what impact they 're actually having and you, you know if we look at um, lots of digital techniques like attribution modeling. Um, even to simpler things like multi-channel funnels in Google Analytics, they're actually allowing us to see how these different touch points actually um, come together to some extent. Now, this is heresy mm-hmm. from a lot of a lot of brand managers
2: mm-hmm. maybe,
1: with brands and and those sorts of things. They say, well you can't, you know, you, you can never really work this out. You can't work it out completely, but you can certainly break it down a little bit more as well. And everything that you're doing should have value. And even if it is positioning a celebrity wearing on a certain piece of clothing, it is possible or it's more possible now to work out what impact that's actually having. And it's a combination of very traditional technologies or methodologies, i.e. sampling and surveying and speaking to people. Combine that with analytics, attribution, one of those sort of things, and you suddenly come up with something quite interesting. Mm. Because the example I always give is that for years and years, if you were spending a million pounds on a TV app, you would probably then go off and spend a number of thousand pounds um, on analysing what impact that TV ad had. Whereas if you spend five thousand pounds on some display advertising online, you're probably not going to spend that amount of money working out if it works or not. So there's a cultural difference between the two things mm-hmm. as well. And I think it's actually trying to bring that measurement culture through to digital and say, yes, we have analytics, but the reality of it is that. It's not just about the analytics. You need to understand on a human level how this is impacting people, and to do that, you need to ask questions and you need to sample survey. But actually, digital gives us a really easy and scalable way of asking people questions as well. Well, I have, I have, um, I mean, I,
0: I think in my discourse, I talk about the difference of branding as well. I'm not sure if I get it from, from the same angle, but my, my, well, let's say my belief is that with digital. Branding has changed because of the role of the employee in the in the channels and the the touch points and just because just what just like we have every consumer is now able to engage, there's a sort of a wider need for employees also to be representing the brand
1: absolutely and i i mean if you look at the the change there is that customer service used to be seen as an area where you could save money because you could install a call center. And you could make the queue in that call center, you know, for X amount of time because they didn't really have any way of complaining about it. Whereas the empowerment of the individual and the empowerment of the employee to represent the brand, And I, I think the reality is that this it, it's different, but it's the same because every touch point you have impact your, your kind of consideration of that brand. But actually, at an individual level now, we're having more of an impact. And we're able to do that, which also means that some brands need to change because they just don't work the same way in a digital world. Right. Well, so you have two things:
0: you have the value and the the values of the brand, and then the ability for the employees to incarnate and and represent those
1: values. Absolutely, and and this comes on something that I you know, just before we were we were doing this kind of recording, we were we were talking about it, and it's the idea that um, that. In reality, if a brand goes out and says, right, what we're going to do is we're going to be cool. <laughs> if you decide to be cool. You, you have to actually be cool to, mm. to, to do that. And, and that's something that's intrinsic to what you're doing and how you're doing it. So it, you can't just go, right, this is our brand and these are going to be our brand values. You have to live the brand value, which is the, the whole um, the transparency that it brings as well, which is why I think this leads to fundamental business change. Um, Jonathan McDonald's a, a guy that I've, I've done some training with, a very inspirational guy. Look him up on YouTube to see some of his videos. Mm-hmm. But, but, but Jonathan McDonald talks about brand democracy a lot, and a few other people have spoken about this as well. But the idea of brand democracy is that your brand said it is, is what everyone else says it is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if you go off and do a very shallow, right, we're going to be funny, or we're going to do a viral video, it won't work unless there's some real um, honesty and authenticity to the whole thing.
0: Yeah. like I, I wrote a post called... Uh... Red Bull syndrome, which is um, this notion that, well, we should do like they are.
1: Right. And, and that's great if you're going to live it. And they live it. And it's, it's, it's every part of the organization. And they, they sink budgets into <laughs> the dream of doing it um, because they believe in it. And it's actually something that you know, they're, they're kind of passionate about. And I, and I think without that passionate authenticity, mm-hmm. and this is the story of every social media disaster out there pretty much, is that it, it's quite often – it's, it's lack of staff training a lot of the time as well because they're not living it and they're not encouraging their staff to live it. Or it's the fact that they're trying to pretend to be something they're not and people recently seeing through these things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It, and it just doesn't work. And that, what that means is that actually passion and authenticity and all those sorts of things can go an awful lot way in the business world.
0: Mm. Uh, in your book, are you looking specifically at luxury and how that's playing out?
1: Not at all. What we, we try to do is try to be as broad as possible, as global as possible, the whole thing, which is difficult because there's such big differences. Sure. But the key thing is to say, there is this thing called branding. What, what does it actually mean? How do you value a brand? And, and there's all these traditional ways of valuing the value of a brand.
0: Mm-hmm. Interbrand or whatever.
1: Exactly. And, and, and going through and saying, okay, um, the brand is the stuff that impacts your user that isn't directly your effort. Well, actually... Every bit of your brand is is one way or another your direct effort. It's just that you aren't able to work it out. You're not able to track it a lot of the time. And it may be over 50 years that you've built this brand, and you, but it's about, as simply as saying, every touch point, whether that's via a website, via speaking to someone, via word of mouth for a friend, seeing a TV ad, it doesn't matter what it is. It's impacting your brand perception. And actually, we have the ability to have much more close and in, and passionate and. Uh, engage brand experiences now because of digital. Well,
0: and I think that the the, where that training comes in is that to the extent that we have these values and the the immediacy of the ability to talk about it, well, you can't invent it on the spot. So when you and I are speaking, right now we're live, and it has to come from somewhere. I can't go scurrying to a book and say, oh, gosh, what is my value when my client's in front of me or on a page? And so the immediacy means that you actually have to completely live it. It has to be in you and come out. And of course, you're going to make the mistakes along the way, which needs counselling and, and some structuring. But it, it does talk to the need to be able to help employees learn how to speak in the tongue of, uh, in the you know real time moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and as you say, if you're not living here, then it, then it just doesn't work. And it actually. This, this is a big fundamental change for businesses where, okay, yes, they have to have they have to be living their brand, but they also need to accept that the way their staff are being trained and educated is going to, is going to be an ongoing constant and that the, the, the guaranteed thing is the rate of change is going to continue to get faster and faster. Mm. It's organizations that position themselves in terms of structure, process, training, staff, brand, they're able to adopt and adjust more quickly. Um, those are the ones that are going to survive and thrive, whereas those very traditional, what we call, you know, corporate structure, traditional corporate structure organisations that where change is a problem and change is difficult and change is slow are the ones that are going to gradually have more and more problems with these kind of
0: mm. things. So, Daniel, on another topic, um, you, uh, just the, a little week ago or so, you got hacked.
1: Right? <laughs> well, we didn't actually got hacked. We had a hack attack. Ah,
0: is- all right, so tell us what
1: happened and how did you deal with it? Think about it. So... I I use an excellent hosting company. I use hosting.com. It's a big U.S. hosting company. Uh, I have a cloud-based server, and we actually use WordPress for our main website. We have a very customized kind of version of WordPress, but we use WordPress. Now, people may not be aware, um, there's something called a brute force attack. And what a brute force attack is, hackers suddenly decide they want to hack into your website, and they bombard your login pages to your ad, to where you administrate your website from, with login attempts, and they'll try every combination of password and username until the theory is they're going, to just, they're going to get it right eventually. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, doing hundreds and hundreds of logins. We literally had thousands of servers around the planet doing tens of thousands of attempted logins every minute. Um, and the knock-on effect of that is that your website falls over. Mm-hmm. It's being, now, now, a couple of things that were, were good. First of all, the hosting company flagged it up and said, you know, your, um, your responsiveness time of your website has gone down. And they looked into it immediately, tried to work out what was going on. The problem is the website's going so slowly that they can't really check it. So <laughs> got <laughs> this kind of initial situation. Then they say, "What well, you are under a brute force attack. And this comes by an email, I assume. So they, they just dropped me an email. And I, I get um, live chat supports. So we went on, we had a chat, and a, a very nice engineer, uh-huh. and I can't sing their praises enough for this, actually, identified what the issue was. So it was interesting what we had to do. So let me just explain the background. WordPress is a very common... Uh, blogging platform, but it's essentially just the content management system, and that means that every WordPress website, you basically have the same page you go to log into for your. Ad. You can change all these things, but what it means is for hackers, they can they can write software that attacks the known login area, or if there are any known known vulnerabilities. Now, luckily, we patch, meaning that we update our WordPress constantly, so we had the very latest version, didn't have any security flaws in it. We also had very, very secure passwords, mm-hmm. usernames. So it's not just, you know, it's uppercase, lowercase. We've got all sorts of different characters in there. They're extremely long. Um, and we worked out in advance that if there was a brute force attack, it would take a number of years for them to actually try and work out what these were going through every possible combination. So luckily we're in that position. So that has be my first advice is have very strong passwords. But then what we had to do is the... Um, essentially the hosting company had to close off everyone from the website apart from me. I went in um, and I was able just to go and install a plugin. Uh, and this plugin would basically allow me to, to, to block certain IP addresses, but it would also make it, I had a live report on who was trying to log into my admin, mm-hmm. go through and block those IP addresses automatically. Anyone tried to log in more than five times in a 10 second period, they were blocked automatically and all those sorts of things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that, that, basically gated the website, and we gradually went through it. and in the end, we actually blocked over 10,000 IP addresses. And how long did that process take? The, the Going from it messing up to installing the, um, the plugin in the first place was a, a couple of hours,
2: probably.
1: Huh. But we spent three days blocking IP addresses, working at what they were trying to do. They were probing different areas of the website and so on as well. And, and this is where I got really upset about the whole thing, because Basically, I run a, a, a micro-business. It's me and a few freelancers. They
2: mm-hmm.
1: come across it's a slightly bigger business, but it's <laughs> just, Okay? So, and the way I, I was I was quite impassioned about this at the time, because I thought, I'm, I'm trying to feed my children. Right. And I'm very personal about the whole thing. I said, so these hackers have just attacked my website. They've decided to do it. Um, as far as I know, this is a random thing. They've decided like, they just want to get access to the content, and they're going to try and hack into it, whether that's for intellectual stimulation or I don't know, sort of paid them to do it. I don't I don't think I've ever upset with someone enough for them to want to do that. Mm. It's like if you had a shop, someone walking in and just smashing your front window in, and then there being no one to police that. So mm-hmm. you have to sit outside your window protect the shop and putting up barricades and then they smash those down and you put other so it's it's a bit of a crazy situation where there's no real protection for it. You
0: need e police, you need some e goons.
1: the the problem is as well that you, you get into this whole kind of privacy debate at this point as well
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, you know, there are good hackers and bad hackers out there but a lot of them will say well we're there to protect privacy and we're going to protect you from governments and unscrupulous organisations so but who's regulate? self-appointed regulators
2: mm-hmm. and
1: there are some big ethical kind of questions at, at play here as well Crazy so well. it was a hack that we managed to fix it um, luckily I mean my I, I came into the digital marketing I was a web developer a long time ago mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm a, a good web developer, but I know a little bit that I can hack a little bit of PHP code. I can mm-hmm. um, I can manage my WordPress website. I can install plugins. I can, mm-hmm. you know, IP addresses and all those sorts of things. So I was able to fix it. The, the thing that made me sad a little bit is I tell everyone, anyone can start a business now because you can use WordPress, you can use an e-commerce platform, you're going to run your own business. And essentially the hack attack, if I didn't know what I was doing, would have shut down my website mm-hmm. for a period of time. They would have got into the back end and done what they wanted to do. And I would have lost the money I was making from the website. And it would have meant that that business potentially is out of business. Yeah, totally. Um, Do you you, um,
0: have a a favorite system for managing your passwords? Do you you use LastPass
1: or something like this? Password. So um, it's something that sits on my desktop um, and it sits on my phone, all those sorts of things. Every time I, I log into a website... Um, it, it tells me to randomly generate a, a, a very very strong password, and then I log in via this. And I don't need to remember all the passwords. it remembers them all for me. I use a single password that isn't actually sent onto the web, and it posts them on and it remembers them for me as well. Which which, which service? One password. Oh, one password, yeah, like LastPass. Um, password. Very yeah, exactly the same thing. Basically. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Cool. Also- and and uh, I was going to question for you, Daniel. Just um, you know. M- Possibly Geek Talk, but for others, is normal. Um, uh, TweetDeck. You use Hootsuite, TweetDeck? And if you, what's your opinion of the future of both of these services?
1: So I use Hootsuite. I used to use TweetDeck a little bit. As we've got more multi-platform, I've started using Hootsuite a little bit more. Um, so we, for target internet, we have Facebook, Google+, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, we use Pinterest a little bit as well. But Essentially, we're managing all those things in one place. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm posting the same content for every channel, but it just gives me a kind of a relatively easy login to look after that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like the Google suite, what they've changed is I can now add um, track code for Google Analytics automatically um, in a, in a certain format through to each of my links. And there's a number of things that it's automating for me, and making my life slightly easier as well. Um, and we just did a, a podcast about this as yeah, well. Yeah. So listen to. Uh, yeah, and I, and I, I like people tweet a lot from that point of view. However, saying that, I do find myself logging in manually to each of the platform. The reason being, we talked about this in the mobile marketing book as well, actually, is that, you know, you see a really interesting website and you tweet about it and you're sitting at your laptop or your desktop and doing, we always forget that probably, you know, at least a third of your audience are then going to go and look at that on a mobile device,
2: mm-hmm.
1: actually check if it's working on a mobile device. So... I also don't know if Facebook has changed its look and feel or, or Google+, which is constantly changing its look and feel at the moment, how that's displaying. How it actually, so I'm, I'm quite keen still at the moment to constantly log into these platforms and actually look at how things are looking to most users. Yeah, so then you post,
0: but your, your real intention is just to understand the user experience a little bit more, just make sure you're up to date with what's going on inside. Just
1: checking it and just kind of being manual about it. And then... Um, Who's tweeting, talks like that? Are great. I think it's easy to miss things as well. So I'd say they're great for saving time, mm-hmm. just like anything else. There's no real replacement for for going through and doing things manually as well. But mm-hmm. it is time-consuming, which is what I keep saying to lots of clients. What we end up going to is that actually it's about doing less and doing it better.
2: Right.
1: So rather, being selective. Exactly. And rather than being on every single platform, mm-hmm. some, provides some value. Now we go back to the the thing that I always rant about, which is. Essentially, it's all about providing value, just like just like marketing has always been, mate. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that that's really where it is, and it, it's just talking about you know, If you're providing content, what's the value in that? Why would I bother following your? why am I going to follow you on Twitter because you're giving me something useful? And if you're not, you might as well forget it. Well, let's just
0: let's just finish on on the last topic, which um which is uh, this notion of creating a digital marketing strategy, which is something you do a lot. Give us, you know, I would say the, the the blueprint, or you know, at least not the full picture. But how do you approach creating a digital marketing strategy?
1: The the, the first thing we always do is, which is what most organisations miss, is you go in and take a step back, and pretty much all of the the, the the strategy models out there start with some form of situational analysis, um, and that's what we need to do. It's actually boiling back to basics. my favourite strategy model which is the oldest one in the book um, is SOSTAT which is Paul R. Smith's um, kind of model. And sauce that basically because you use some steps to remember. It's basically a, a kind of a, a checklist of things you should look at. And that starts with situational analysis. And what you're really doing is saying, okay, what are your business objectives? What do you want that your, your end customer is actually wanting? And, and how do you link the two things? How do you provide value? And I think that value proposition becomes the important thing here, which is really saying, okay, our strategy needs to communicate. This value proposition, and we need to really say what is in it for the what's in it for the potential audience. So I think taking that step back, is important. then you look at understanding the journey, where you are currently, at, this kind of stuff aligns together. Once you've done that, then you can start going through and doing things else. But until you've done that, we still all make too many assumptions. Mm. We've done this for a number of years, so we need to tweak it or adjust it. And actually, if the environment changed, might be doing completely wrong thing. One of the
0: yeah, one what, what of the sorry.
1: Because the environment has, I mean, that's the key thing that we're seeing, is that the environment we're working with is changing at a a really, really fast pace. So therefore, it can be quite valuable to take a step back from time to time. Um, And we're so knee-deep in work that we don't get to do that all the time as well.
0: One of the questions I like to ask in that sort of upstream taking a step back is, what are you hoping to achieve with digital that you haven't been able to achieve offline, and why do you think you're going to be able to do it with digital?
1: Yeah, i I think that, that gets the heart of it because there's a, there's a question here. I, I get taken and oh, we need to draw our digital strategy. And it's like, well, can I can I see your business strategy? And they're like, no, no, we want a separate digital strategy. The whole, so, the digital is part of the strategy, and it's, it it makes no sense. It's like having a marketing strategy, a digital marketing strategy, and the two things aren't aligned with one another.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was part of this. Um, it's a very large part. I think the reality is that rather than we're, we're eventually going to get to the point where just like mobile, the word mobile doesn't make a lot of sense because it's everything.
2: Sure.
1: So it will start to make a lot less sense as well because everything will be digital or be affected by digital. Um, as TV becomes more multi-screen, and print ads drivers, to online, the blurring of the lines of what's digital is what what's not become more and more challenging. Actually, more of the work I'm doing, which used to be digital strategy, is now business strategy. And mm-hmm. actually, that's moving us into all sorts of different spaces <laughs> looking at brand, brand value, and stuff you were just speaking about a moment ago. So really, and Google have, Google have said this for a long time, you shouldn't talk about digital marketing, because the problem we talk about digital marketing is that it makes it sound like a channel, whereas that strategically changes everything, and we need to look at things through a digital lens. So to quote the way Google talks about it, hmm. when you I- look at things through a digital lens, then it, it kind of puts everything in perspective. But the, the consumer, the environment uh, the consumer is a bad word now as well because we don't consume, we engage with but I think it's fundamentally changed things, and what it really means is that this is about business strategy overall, not just about digital strategy
0: Alright, well Daniel, um, you mentioned at the beginning you have an e-learning platform uh, how can uh, people sign up for that and um, also how would you uh, what's the best way you'd like people to follow you or connect with you if they're listening to this podcast?
1: So all of the contact details on our targetinternet.com, which is where all the free content is and all those kind of things. If you're interested in the e-learning, you'll find all the information about the e-learning on targetinternet.com as well. Um, If you want to get in contact, the best way to do that is probably via Twitter, Daniel Roles, Daniel, R-O-W-L-E-S, and you'll find me on there. If you can't remember that, then it's just targetinternet.com, and you'll find all the contact details there.
0: Well, Daniel, as always, it's a pleasure listening to you, talking with you. Um, and uh, I'll put all those naturally in the show notes, and I look forward to hopefully having you back on the show in six months' time and see how your digital branding books out. Fantastic,
1: It's a bit a pleasure. I thank you very much for listening. My pleasure. Thanks for having
0: listened to this recording of the Minted Dialogue Internet Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please rate it in iTunes, and don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or to tweet it out. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset or catch me on Twitter at M-D-I-A-L. Happy trails.